Colossians chapter 2. You should have a Bible with you. If you don't, uh, that's fine. You might have one on your device or there's some in the seats in front of you. You can see page 924 and 925. I would love for you guys to follow along um, seeing the words for yourself. Um, You guys are the best because I know that it's hard to, you know, we've been doing Colossians like every month or three months, you know, and so it's hard to keep track with where we're at. Uh, This letter, when it was originally written from Paul to the city in Colossae, would have just been like written or read straight through just to everyone at the same time, all the way through, and you would have gathered in his argument and his line of thinking and all that stuff. And when we break it up like this, we get deep, which we love, but then we lose the context. And so keep trying with me. You guys are the best for uh, doing that. I'll help you out with some uh, scaffolding for what we're going to talk about, some kind of thing that you can build upon. So a little recap. But any beachgoers here? Beachgoers? Come on, raise your hand if you love the beach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some people hate the beach. Um, we don't like those people. Um, just kidding. Uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, this this danger was only something that the veteran beach girl would know about. But now there's signs all over the beach. Um, as you walk onto the beach, you see these big signs that, that, that teach you a little bit about rip currents. All right. You guys know what a rip current is. All right. So you guys have all been educated by this. But back uh, when I was young, there wasn't these signs. And so your parents tell you, okay, this is what a rip current is. If this happens, this is what you know. Okay, it's a phenomenon. If you don't know that the ocean water is pulled back into the ocean at a really high rate because of tide reasons, but also because sandbars create a funnel and pull the water back out quickly. Now, if you get caught in riptide, it can be a little scary. Okay, it's happened to me a couple of times. And what do you do? You start to panic. You're, you're getting pulled out into the ocean farther than you want. So what do you start doing? You start going back hard, right? But that's not what you're supposed to do, right? No. What are you supposed to do? Everyone said it together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good. You guys need to practice that a little bit. We'll go back over it. But yes, it's scary out there. The waves are crashing on you, but, and you're trying. Every bit of energy is spent kind of trying to fight it. But that's not the way to get out of it. The way to get out of it is actually to go uh, parallel to the shore. And so uh, it's a scary thing. And I think that, that whole imagery reminds me of where we're at in Colossians. Okay, Again, we're in Colossians 2. And the, this, the writer, the Apostle Paul, he knows that there's a very dangerous current, a very dangerous phenomenon happening where false teaching is coming into the church these churches that he went around birthing. And, you know, the church wasn't set up quite like it is today, where there's like a, you know, a pastor that stays with the flock, you know, as long as they're called there. And more, it was like there was elders there that were able to teach, but there was these itinerant teachers that would come through. There's even this little document, the Dadachi, I think it's called, that uh, was very early in the Christian church that, would give kind of like the, the, the ground rules for this. And so if a guy, if an if a itinerant teacher came through and stayed more than like three or four days, the didaches, that's a false teacher. They're trying to, they're mooching off of you. You know, get them out of there. And so it was set up a little bit different than it is now. Um, and he knew, and the, the Apostle Paul knows that there's this very dangerous current or 
phenomenon of false teaching threatening to take over his beloved church. Okay, and so he embarks in this letter to give them some warning signs. That He gives them the sign. How do you get out of that false teaching? How do, you, how do you recognize it and then how do you get out of it? And that's kind of this, it feels like the central thrust of this letter that he wrote. And that's where we're kind of coming to uh, in this section today. And so hopefully that gives us some context. Um, the whole, you know, bigger than where we're at today, more of what Colossians is about is the preeminence of God, the sufficiency of Christ above every other thing that you can imagine, sufficiency in creation, sufficiency in relationship, that he is the link between God and man and the only link between God and man, sufficiency over every doctrine. You know, that just throughout the whole letter, it's very short, but he, you can tell that he's trying to put Christ above everything else. He's trying to make sure that they know that without a shadow of a doubt. And so that's uh, primarily what Colossians is about. And he's setting the stage to talk about the, the false teaching. Um, and he's going to talk about this group of people called the Gnostics. And so that's a, that's a weird word. We don't usually use that word. Um, and so if, especially if you're new to Bible, new to the Christian faith, Gnostic might sound like a, a bit uh, foreign to you. But uh, who, who are these people? That's what he's going to kind of talk about. Who are these people? He's, and what are they teaching? And why is he so adamant to go against them and, and, and face them kind of front and center? And so, uh, you know, a good movie has a bunch of foreshadowing throughout. And so we didn't really talk about the foreshadowing in our previous times in Colossians. But if you were like, you know, you watch the movie a second time and all those little foreshadowing things start to pop at you. As we talk about the Gnostic teaching and, um, and how he addresses it, if you go, were to go back and read chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, you'd start to see, oh, he was setting the stage all along. This is what he's going to talk about. And so last time, it was uh, end of June, uh, we finished talking about this unshifting hope that the gospel brings because of unearned holiness. Unshifting hope based on unearned holiness. And he's not, now he's going to move to, like, what's it mean to walk in that hope? Here's what the gospel is as a, as a way to stabilize your hope based on unearned holiness. But how do you walk in that? And so and that's where we're going to start. Uh, Colossians cha uh, chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to read all the way to 15. That's going to be our passage for today. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the, fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Father, we are grateful for your word. Uh, we are grateful for this morning where those of like mind posturing themselves towards you would be encouraged and, and actually met with into your presence. And Lord, we want that this time to be glorifying to you and edifying to each of us. And we need your spirit to be part of that, if not the part of that, the main part of that. And so, Lord, I just invite each of us here to have open hearts, open minds to how you are ministering to us in special ways. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as you can see, we and Kyle alluded to, it's the, the passage starts with a therefore. And the, the fancy word, if, you, if it starts with a therefore, you find out what it's there for. Okay? It can, it's a connection phrase. Okay, So he's connecting what he was talking about, that stabilizing effort of the, or that stabilizing force of the gospel in a life. And he's connecting it to walking in that stabilizing force. That as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And what's he mean by walk in him? Being rooted and built up in him. You think of like an oak tree reaching its roots really down deep and providing a, a foundation for it to grow deep and wide and tall. And so that's what he's talking about, connecting that gospel with walking in it. And it, uh, it's not just walking with him it's it's a weird can you put that phrase that that verse back up john if you notice he says um walk in him we would normally say walk with him right like we walk with one another we don't walk in one another i don't go for a walk in my wife i go for a walk with my wife and so this is an interesting phrase that he's really trying to bring forth what it means that we are unified with jesus christ the believer is actually made one with Jesus Christ, unified with him. And so it's not just that we're walking side by side with one another and he has his indwelling power and I do not, but I can walk and receive the benefits of that. No, it's actually that we, I walk with him and what is given, has been given to Christ has been given to me equally. Okay, so it's a wild term, and he, you can tell that he means, do we have that other one with the, the big section with all the highlights? Okay, this is the whole verse the, that we read today. Look how many in hymns or with hymns there are, right? This unity in Christ is, is kind of like filtering it, or it's uh, threading its way through everything that he's trying to communicate, and it will drop off after this. And so this section Whatever he's trying to do, and at least he's trying to put forth that you are one with Christ. The stabilizing effect of the gospel has a stabilizing effect on a life as we are rooted and built up and established and abounding in thanksgiving, implying a, a thanksgiving towards salvation, okay? And so that's what he, he starts with. You received him. Now walk in him. What's it mean to walk with him even further? That's where he's going to go next. 
He says, see to it in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by empty or philosophy and empty deceit. See to it. It's an active term, right? It's not passive. This is actually just one of four ter- or statements of caution. If you look up in um, verse 4 of chapter 2, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We have in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. In verse 16, if you look down, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Right? These, these, he's saying, he's making this statement of caution. Do not let this happen. And so why we know there is more, I hope you guys know this, there is more to walking with Christ and living a life with Christ, like that's a, that's a big category, walking with Christ. We know from this section, at least part of walking with Christ, at least one minutia part of walking with Christ is being extremely cautious, extremely cautious of how others influence your understanding of who the Lord is and how he interacts with his creation. So it, at least when you think about your walk with Christ, we, we say walk, but we mean like journey or you know life with Christ. When you think about that walk with him and in him, at least one part of that, one category of that, is being extremely wary and watchful to who is influencing us and how they're doing so. All right, and so this is not going to, we don't have time today to get into like, all the lies that are thrown at us and all the lies that we are potentially going to believe. And a lot of today is going to be more focused on the truth rather than the lie. But next time we are in Colossians, we are going to go through some more of the lies that he was being, he was coming, Paul was coming up against, but in a different way, the lies that we come up against as well. And so that's going to be next time as the teaser. Okay. Um, But, at least we'll start with a broader picture of lies, okay? Because he's saying, I need you to walk in Christ. And by walking in Christ, I mean, I need you to be very wary and very watchful about what is said about God and how he interacts with creation. I would say this as a category or or a, a way to think about lies or deceit. Every lie that has the ability to destabilize us, remember his foundational imagery that he's using, will come in one of two ways, all right? It's probably either a lie about who God is, okay, his character, his nature, who God is, or a lie about who you are in light of who God is, okay? And you think, you can think through the Bible, your, your Bible stories, that, that, are, that are coursing through your mind right now and think every time there was some kind of deception, it was related to who God is or, or who we are in light of who God is. And that's where lies live. Um, you think about Matthew 16, 15, and, and Jesus saying to his disciples, you know, who do they say that I am? And then he says, who do, who do you say that I am? Okay, that's the premise of all truth. Uh, who God is and who he says we are, okay? So 
a wary watchfulness in walking with the Lord. So who are these? He says, see to it that no one. Who are these ones that he's talking about? It's, uh, he's writing to this audience where these knowledgeable teachers would come in, like I said, kind of itinerant teachers would come through, and Christian hospitality would say that you are supposed to welcome these people, to care for them, uh, care for their needs, to kind of you know, give them an ear, so to speak. And they would come in, and the, the, the Gnostics that he's thinking about, the ones that he's warning about, would speak a language that sounds awfully familiar. It sounds really close. It's, it's words that you know, sanctification or redemption, but words and, their, and, their, and what you mean by them truly matter. And so they would use a similar lingo as the Jewish faith or the, the, the kind of uh, the, the, the Christian faith that was coursing its way through the Roman Empire. They'd use a similar lang- uh, uh, lingo, and, but they would have a further insight for it, okay? It wouldn't be based on the traditional insight. It would be based, they, yeah, it says that, the apostles said that, but here's, here's, what, here's what God has revealed to me. Or, yes, the Old Testament says that, but, and I know that the, they've interpreted it that way forever, but actually God has given me an insight that's this direction, in that. You know, they would take what was, has been said and they would offer this new insight that only has been offered to them as they, as they teach it. And he's warning them about that. It, or that. That's who he has in mind, those that were doing that kind of thing. Gnostic is just a word that means like knowing or insight, okay? And so it, it became a derogatory term as they, the Christians towards the Gnostics because they're like, Oh, yeah, they know everything. You know, yeah, they use the same word, knowing, but it's they think they know, but they don't know. Okay? So they're coming in, and no one, I, you know, I've looked at a bunch of books and stuff like that, but there's a bunch of debate on exactly who these people were that Paul was specifically talking about. So we're going to stick on the clearer points. One, there is distinctly Jewish concepts that are included in that he addresses. So it's in some way the Gnostics knew the Jewish, they were either Jewish, like Judaizers, or they knew about the Jewish uh, the religion and faith, and so they were using those words or whatever, but there is distinctly Jewish concepts as part of their structure that they were teaching, but attached to it is this Greek or pagan way of thinking as well. So it's like Judaism mingled with Hellenistic ideas. And so every time lies, especially related to like cults and stuff like that, come about, it's always a mix, right? There's no purity. It's taking from this and taking from this and taking from this so I can actually put together the thing that actually tickles my ears and my fancy. And so that's what, any time you think about Gnostic teaching, which has happened throughout the generations up until today, it's always a mixture. And so Paul knows knows that they are in danger of deceit. And so he starts to talk about this. And the first thing he talks about is philosophy. And that's not meant in the good and noble sense, which is a love of wisdom. We would all, yeah, everyone want wisdom, love wisdom, right? 
So it's not that type of philosophy that he's talking about. He's talking about like a, like a, a, a high thinking that is just so far out there that you're living in the clouds. Gnostic, Gnostic thought was based on escape. Okay, Gnostic thought was based on escape, escape from the physical realm. To, to the Gnostic, they couldn't reconcile the, the challenges of the world and what his sin has brought in with a God who let that happen. And so their way of reconciling it was, well, the physical realm is wrong and bad, and to attain to salvation would to be to attain to a, such a spiritual understanding that you're not even part, you're not even living in this world. Okay, and so that, that, that's what he means by philosophy, letting your, your thoughts go so out there that you're not, even, you're not even with us anymore. You're not even living here anymore. And, and, he, and he adds to it, empty to see. And so he's scared that there would be actually a capturing that happens here. Like you imagine a, a, a kingdom coming in, taking over a people, and then taking them away from where they were. That's the words he's used, take captive. That you would become captured, the, the, his beloved church would become captured by this type of high thinking that would be totally empty and hollow and vain, and they would be led away to be slaves in this, this kingdom of nothingness, this kingdom that doesn't provide. It was a false wisdom, that empty deceit, that philosophy, that came from a false authority. It was according to human tradition. That was the authority. What, what God has revealed to me personally, and then the, then the traditions that we are making based upon those secret revealings. Okay, and so it's a false wisdom that comes from a false authority. Human tradition is not authority. Think about the Catholic Church in this sense. Human tradition is not authority. God is authoritative. So whether it was the high-sounding nonsense or the, the intellectualism, he, Paul knows that the battleground is going to be the battleground of thought. Okay, He's not coming in with, to, to take captive with sword and spear. It's, a, it's the battleground of thought. And so how does Paul going to backfill what he just dug up? Okay, he just dug all this. He's digging this, these things up in his, his beloved church to be aware of. But what is he going to backfill it with? With right thinking. With right thinking about who God is and what he has done in this world. Okay, the, the, the famous analogy of the counterfeit bill. You guys have heard this before? No? Good. I get to tell you the first, okay? The analogy or the, the, the imagery goes is uh, they, they, how do you, those that are seeking to take counterfeit bills off the market, out of the world, how do they teach them to know what a counterfeit is? Because there's so many different counterfeits. Well, they, they train them they, and they continually train them, but they don't put all the counterfeits before them. They just put the real thing. And they just give them the real money and they study the real money to the point where they know it, they smell of it, the touch of it, that maybe the taste of it, they're weird. All right? Like, you know, like they just know it that as soon as they touch something else, uh, uh, no, that's not it. You know, 
No. Not saying. You know what I mean? And so that's like how they train for, for, for taking counter. Now there's computers and stuff that do that. But back in the day. And I think that's what he's hoping, Paul's hoping for, right? As he digs up kind of the things that, that they're being taught from these false teachings, false teachers, as he digs those up, he wants to backfill it with the truth so that there, not even things can go back into that hole that's been dug up, that emptiness that's been dug up, okay? So he's, now we're going to get into that. That was that last section of this. This is the rest of our passage. The truth that he is backfilling uh, at this, at least, philosophy and empty deceit. Okay. Quick drink here. For in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is going to contrast these empty, uh, this empty deceit and, uh, and these elemental spirits of the world. You saw that? That's like the ABCs of the world, right? That how, the, how things are put together. The Gnostic was just living in, in, in that realm, like how, who, the angel, sorry, who the angels are, you know, who the, who the, who the, who the demons are. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you attain to their status? It was all focused on these ABCs of how the world was put together instead of the one who put it together. That's what they were focused on. And he's going to contrast that with, and you see he uses the word for, for in him, the full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's contrasting these ABCs, these empty things with the fullness of Christ. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so he's connecting those two statements and he's saying that their philosophy is hollow and empty because it focuses on principles of the world, not the principle of the world. Does that make sense? Okay, it focuses on the rudimentary things of the world instead of the one who created it. He's rhetorically asking the question here. Why would you give yourself over to the empty philosophy of those in error when, contrasting empty with there's a fullness of deity that is in Christ and he is the head of all rule and authority over anything else you could bring to the table. Why would you, why would you go to something that's, it's like the difference between, this is a terrible illustration, I just thought of it right now, so you know it's going to be bad. The hollow Easter bunny that you got, the chocolate hollow one, and the solid one, right? There's nothing on the inside except air. But the other one's solid and you can eat for a month. Uh, Easter's terrible. Stop it. Um, Paul... He, he talks about this in other places. Again, these things aren't in a vacuum here. 1 Corinthians 8, he's talking about food being offered to idols. He says this, Therefore, to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, 
And he almost like just gives them the argument anyway. Okay, say there is, okay? For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. No matter how airy a teacher's talk can get about the spiritual realm, no matter how much they can talk about what was created in the spiritual realm, the Lord still envelops that, right? Like, it's just having your eyes too low. And so he still envelops that. Jeremiah, maybe in, in a different way, talks about it like this. For my people have committed two evils. What have they done? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And he's like, so he's, again, putting forth the, 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 the contrast here. Empty, broken cisterns with dirty water at the bottom of it, and you want to choose to drink from that, or living, uh, 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 something that is living, flowing, unending, giving sustenance and, and life. This emptiness and fullness is, a, is another one of those overarching themes of Colossians. Um, the, that, that there's a fullness in Christ and we are filled in that fullness. This, uh, this, fray, this uh, words from on this hymn uh, are, are nice to think about, poetic. Complete in thee, no work of mine. May take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and I am now complete in thee. If you feel like you are missing something, anything, good even, good, it's not just the bad things or the things like, yeah, I'm missing a boat or whatever, okay? The things that you know aren't, aren't really that important. But if you feel like you're missing anything in this world, if you are in Christ, the truth is you are missing nothing. He is enough. He alone is enough. And I think when we know that, it helps us to not reach for those things that we want to reach for. Proverbs 27, 7 says it this way. One who is full, think about our fullness in Christ, one who is full loathes honey. I love honey. I'll just drink, eat it with a spoon. But the one who is so full in Christ even loathes honey. But to the one who is hungry, has those hunger pangs, will eat something so gross and bitter. Right? Paul is trying to make his case here. Don't go to this emptiness. Fill yourself instead with Christ and you won't even desire it. Your ears won't even be itchy anymore. And he's, he quickly, he talks, notice he dwells bodily. That was a specific teaching of the Gnostics that is found throughout the, the, the epistles that they were teaching that Jesus, because creation is bad jesus could have no part and parcel with creation he could not dwell bodily 
So they did some wacky stuff. He came down in spirit and dwelled with the man Jesus. And then before uh, uh, the crucifixion, he got taken back up in, just in spirit form. Because he can't, he can't have nothing to do with, he can't be tainted in any way. This is a little bit more gross. One guy I was reading about this Gnostic thought uh, was, was pointing back to written things from that century that were saying like, he, he was so not part of creation that he didn't even poop, right? He just absorbed all the creation. He, he redeemed it as he came into him. Like, what? What are we talking about? You're like, that's, that's the kind of gymnastics you have to do to make this kind of thing work, right? Instead of just reading it plainly, that he became man. And so he, Paul makes sure that they... He just puts that in there, and we know that he's putting that in there to come against the Gnostic teaching. That that fullness of deity that's in Jesus is also bodily. He dwells bodily. So, verse 11. In him you were were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, I I like the translations. Maybe your translation has it where this is like a new paragraph. That's helpful for me because uh, although everything's connected, you see that in him, right? In him, you also, we know that's connected to what he's been saying, but the new paragraph is good because these are now these Jewish concepts that are going to come into play, and that's helpful for me. Um, Again, but Paul is still laying down truth as the antidote for the poisonous teachings that were being exposed to them. And so in this section, this last section, again, we're talking about Christ's sufficiency, and he's going to talk about Christ's sufficiency in three specific areas. Um, this combination of circumcision and baptism. Jeez, a whiz. Sorry. Um, this combination of circumcision and baptism, he kind of puts them together. We'll talk about that. Number two, the forgiveness of sins that he talks about in, in, after this part. And then the victory over forces of evil. So Christ's sufficiency above any Gnostic teachings sufficiency in these areas. Okay, that's the, that's the general direction we're going. So he says in him, and he says that the church of Colossia, as part of being in Christ, would have experienced a circumcision that is from him. To be in him is to experience a circumcision that is from him. Now, circumcision, I imagine most of us know what this is, but it's the cutting away of the foreskin. Um, it, it, was, it was a sign that was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 to point to that these, this people would have a physical sign that they belong to this God. Okay? And it wasn't just a public sign. You know, we walk around and show, it wasn't a tattoo on the arm or something like that. It was a sign that was kind of quiet or, or, or hidden. And hidden in an area that relates to reproduction, right? And so the, helping us to see that that circumcision was 
pointing towards the line of Abraham bringing forth the Messiah that would be a blessing to all nations. Okay, that's what circumcision is about. But Paul here is talking about a spiritual circumcision, not a physical one. These Gnostics, whoever they were, were going around kind of like in Galatia and teaching that in order to be uh, right with the Lord, even as a Christian, you had to follow Jewish law. Maybe even there's a little bit of a nuance that not only did you have to follow Jewish law to be in as a Christian, but if we think about that higher intellectual thinking, you know, the, the, the best Christians followed it to the, to the letter of the law. You know what I mean? And so they just kept a, whatever it says, I'm going to do it. And as I do it, I'm actually becoming better than the one that doesn't do it. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So Paul is saying that this circumcision does not need to be a physical one. He says it, it can be, it, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, not physical. And what does that circumcision do? It puts off the body of flesh. It's not just the cutting away of a little piece of skin in a, in a small area on the body. It's the cutting away of the whole sin nature, everything in totality. Okay, and it's, it's uh, putting off with the body of flesh and in, by the circumcision of Christ. And then he, this, is, this was a promise, this circumcision of, of the body, of the heart, of the, of the sin nature. This was a promise all the way back in Deuteronomy. This isn't like just New Testament stuff. De- Deuteronomy 30 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, and you may live. God was always planning to do this. Change this symbol from this physical uh, small thing to this spiritual major thing. Okay? And just like this wedding band that I wear, what's it symbolize? That I'm married, right? It's a, it's a sign to the world around me, to myself even, that I'm married. But can this uh, 14 carat, uh, maybe not even that, uh, can, is there any property in this that can help me live into the reality of my marriage? No. And the same thing is true in these signs that he's giving. No, the, if you were part of any Jewish family in the, in, the, in the Israelite nation, Every male was circumcised. Even the ones that were uh, slaves or workers or foreigners were circumcised. But that doesn't mean every single one belonged to Jehovah, right? Right? And so the same thing is true. That the sign does not have to equal the heart posture. But Paul is saying that for for you, in him, in Christ, that circumcision, whether it's a physical reality or not, has happened. He has cut away that sin nature. And he, and he, and he, right alongside of it, he puts baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. The New Testament makes clear that the law to be circumcised to be part of God's people is no longer required. Romans 2, if you want to look that up. 
Circumcision meant the cutting away that would create a physical sign. We talked about that. But now there's, in baptism, there's this new sign that we are part of God's redeemed people. This new sign, baptism, doesn't require blood to be shed, but yet just to go into the water. And that to identify as God's people, we would still have this sign, but this sign would be identifying not with the people of, you know, this is, I'm part of the people of Israel, but this, the sign of baptism would, that I am part of Jesus's death as I go down into the water, under the water, I die with him in, in the baptism waters. And then as I am pulled out of the waters, I also am raised again to new life. So circumcision is not, has not been replaced by baptism, okay? There's no requirement to be circumcised from a spiritual perspective, but circ- for the person that's in Christ, if you are here and you are in Christ, Christ has done a circumcising of your heart. He has, cut, he has done, he, as the great physician, he has cut away the, the old man and made it uh, uh, powerless to uh, keep you uh, ensnared to sin and the penalty of sin. But there is something of progression or completion as he moves that physical sign from being circumcision to baptism. We think about the thief on the cross next to Jesus that received the Lord when he said, remember me when you, when you go. You know, take notice of me as he saw Jesus for who he truly was. That man, though never going into the baptism waters, was baptized. He identified himself with Jesus' forecoming death and then had faith that he would have new life in Christ. And so as Paul talks about circumcision and baptism, he's talking about in a way of just spiritual. Circumcision, baptism, it has happened to the one in Christ and is now identifying us with him. These are the truths that he is backfilling for the sake of the believers in Colossae. To help them to focus on, they belong to Christ, and Christ has been the one that's been faithful to do that work. And they have these physical signs to remind them on them. In a similar way, we have communion as another sign, which is what we're here to do today. And so I'm going to invite Jay and the, the team up, and we're going to um, discuss communion a little bit and then uh, partake together. Um, Brendan, you guys can start passing out too. So circumcision and baptism. Signs that point to verses 13 to four and 14 and 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. 
a list of all your trespasses, all your sins, all your thoughts, all your secret deeds. Fully truthful. No lie on there. That stands as a record against you. And Jesus' death on the cross cancels that record. Even in its legal demands. We sang the song earlier about justice and mercy meeting at the cross. He is fully just in canceling our debt. He nails it to the cross. And in it, he disarms the rulers and authorities. We think about the evil rulers and authorities, the, 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 those that are against God in the, in the spiritual realm. He disarms them. He takes away their weapons and puts them to open shame like a conquering king. Marches them behind the procession as uh, uh, victors over them. Triumphing over them. Just like blood did not, does not need to be shed to be identified with Jesus anymore, with God, that the water does that. So too the Passover celebration is no longer a requirement either. Because the, the, Jesus, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once and all. And when we come to the communion table, at least in part, we take this sacred celebration to remember that we, not, we weren't free, bo- free from a bondage in Egypt like the Egyptians were. We're free from a bondage of sin. And so you think about the lies, the ways that you've been captured, your mind or your heart has been captured. I hope that you're close enough to the Lord that you have something in mind. That he's, he's, he's pricking your heart somewhere. Taking communion is digging up those things and backfilling the, the very basis of the gospel. That Jesus shed his blood that we may have a new covenant of grace applied to us and be part of that new covenant. That we take the bread as Jesus' body broken for us, nailed to the cross with our trespasses. And so there's no higher thinking that we can do, no intellectualism that we have to reach for, no kind of tradition or, or ritual that we have to do to get our body to, 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 to obey Jesus. We have to abide, to to take from that living water instead of the empty cistern. And we, at least in part, we do it with communion.